And even if I'm doing what I can do, and you want to listen, it'll wear on you, and then you won't. And then I'm just a monkey in a suit. So, tell me about it. There's so much. I say this every week now. Fear. They're there on the verge of the promised land. I mean, you've been through this, right? We walked here. The flood is ancient history. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also ancient history, 400 years ago. They're a great nation of hundreds of thousands of people, tribes, warriors even. And they're promised by a fire god who destroyed Pharaoh in an ocean that he's going to take them into this little strip of land and everything's going to be sweet. Like, no sickness, no starvation, no tiredness. Maybe there's, there weren't even Monday morning. It was going to be everything life should be. He'd even given them blood atonement magic. Rituals to perform before him so that he could go with them as their God and make all of this happen. And he's there, a smoking fire God. He says, go in now. And what do we see? We see men who should believe saying, I have a better idea. How about we check it out first, do some reconnaissance, figure out how we want to hit this thing. You will see this being done by nearly every good, faithful judge. And by that I don't mean they were perfect. They will have commands to go and save the people by warfare, and they will never do it the way God says to do it. Even Gideon, you remember wonderful Gideon, right? With the fleece, wet, dry, wet, dry. You know what that is? I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe. And then finally he's sent in, he's just told to attack, he comes up with this hackneyed thing about torches in pots and whatnot. It's all made up, he didn't even do any of that. And then he shouts, for the Lord and for Gideon as he goes, because he gets a big head. Well, here they are, doing it already, again. Not believing that this God is with them. Moses is going to die. I mean, he knows this already. But what do they do? They say, we have a better idea, a better plan. Pots and torches. Send 12 guys up into the land to spy it out. Then we'll know what we should do. Forget just sending the fire God to work for us. He said he will, but no, no, not that. And so, you hear me often, I believe, for good reason, complaining about the uselessness of the old Sunday school songs. I'm sorry, I don't mean to step on your toes. Um, I have a lot of things I have memorized I would rather not have memorized, thanks to Sunday school. And a lot of hymns I would like memorized that are not memorized, because I didn't get to sing them in Sunday school. But I do know this, and it is good for this moment. Twelve spies went into the land. Ten were bad, and two were good. Remember that? Who's the two that are good? You know both these names. Joshua, Joshua, Jesus' namesake, the savior warrior. We'll get to him next week. Caleb, lesser known, but faithful. These two guys go into the land. They see all the amazing fruit. They see the giants that are living there. What does that mean? I don't know. Goliath size or better. Warriors, certainly. Terrifying. They're afraid of it. It's like Assyria, I suppose. They see all of that, and they come back, and they go, well, they could take us, but God can take them. So let's go. And then the ten other guys go, whoa, 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 whoa. We have lots of reasonable doubt here. 
Lots of reasonable doubt. Does anybody really know if this fire God's for us or against us? Is he going to eat us? Maybe he's their God. He's just going to let us all be destroyed in there. You know, honestly, I don't know what lies they told. I know what lies are told here. In Rockford. In Lutheranism in Rockford. In St. Paul in Rockford. I know the kinds of grumbling we do. We don't have any giants to fight, so we don't grumble that way. We grumble about different stuff. But it's the same fear. It's the fear. And because they fear and do not believe that God's word is going to do what God's word has said he's going to do, they decide not to go in. That's the long and short of it, right? And so God comes at them with a little bit of a frustration at this point. What, what more can I do for you, O oh my people? He says that in Isaiah, and we'll sing it on Good Friday. What more could I do? So what he does do is he said, well, here's the thing. Because I'm a gracious God who's really loving, I'm not a terrifying fire God, I'm the creator who made you and wants to redeem you. I have every intention of doing this, not just for you, but for the whole world in that land, and your blood has to be there in a couple hundred years for this to happen. So I'm going to put you in there anyway. Even though you don't believe it and don't want to go. But it's going to be after all of you who are alive right now that made this decision die. So you're going to go sit in that desert until that happens. And then your kids will get to go in, but not you. Now, is that fair? I think so. I think it's more than fair. The grace is that he continues to give salvation after we've rejected him. He continues to care about the life of the world more than you individually. He still cares about you individually, just not more than everybody else. And so he's going to bring this salvation to pass. Now, there's so many more cool things in these Old Testament stories. In Bible study today, we, we highlighted how little I know and how much there is still to find in here. But the piece I want you to pull out of this really long text is the amount of time the spies were there and the relationship of it as a punishment. Right? Did you catch that? Numbers aren't too random in the Bible, usually, especially Old Testament. They're always on purpose. I believe they're always literal. I also believe they're also always metaphorical, ah, figurative. They do both, okay? We're used to, like, metaphor or a hard number. That's what the clock has done to us. But they would see both things as real. So they're 40 days up there spying, a good, nice number, 40 days, kind of longer than a month, you're going to know a lot of anything after 40 days of doing it, right? So that's there, but this, is, this has been here before in the Old Testament. Oh, goodness, the Sunday school songs are going to be back. It rained and poured for, anybody know it? 40 daisies, daisies. Yeah, Jonathan's got it back there. We had to grow up with it if you didn't. 40 days, 40 nights, the rain, the rain. What's the rain? Is that a happy moment in history, those 40 days? That's a really bad thing, that number 40. <laughs> it's a really bad thing. Uh, it is destruction and judgment from God. So God takes that number that they won't believe in as for their benefit when they spy, and he turns it into judgment upon them for every day a year, 40 years in the wilderness. I know you've heard it a million times. You know how long that is, more than you know anything else, probably. Or then you understand the sign of the cross. You know about 40 years in the wilderness. That's okay. But just think about it too. 
Strange that number's there. Why? Judgment. Judgment. And after 40 years in which everybody became a corpse. Imagine that for us right here. 40 years from now, St. Paul will grow again after you have all died. That's God's promise to you in grace. You don't even deserve that much. Right? How would we handle this? Not well, I don't think. I wouldn't. I'd be like whining like a little brat. Oh, God, I'm a pastor now. I don't want to wait. So we're all like this. I'm not trying to just call you out personally, right? But I want you to see the fear. 40 days. So from this time in the wilderness that we're going to spend almost no time on, because next week we get to Joshua entering the promised land, but from this time of judgment in the wilderness with stories about poisonous snakes and the earth swallowing people alive, various uh, points at which people try to take power from Moses and try to take power from Aaron, and they're like, well, God, what do you want to do? And God's like, yeah, Moses and Aaron are mine, and he like destroys other people. All this goes on so that that generation does pass away, and they eventually come back, and they do enter the land under Joshua. That's next week, but now we're going to jump super forward. We're going to jump past Joshua's conquest, and David's conquest, and the kingdom, and Solomon's reign, and the destruction under Rehoboam, and then those down-sliding kings all the way to that Babylonian exile we spent so much time this fall talking about. We're going to jump all the way to that, to the other side. Seventy years, they come back, they're put in the land, they have the temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant. And a guy named Jesus of Nazareth gets baptized by a prophet named John and then goes out of the land. He's in the land. He goes out of the land. He goes from the promised land to the wilderness for 40 days. That's Lent. 40 days of Lent. Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast, like we sometimes do in Lent. You're free to. To fast and to be tested. But when you test the Almighty Son of God, has he got a chance to lose? And the answer is no. So he doesn't go to be tested as if he could fail. He goes to prove his mettle against the old evil foe. That worm and dragon. And he faces him head on. And it's like the dragons of old. It's not like, you know, Sir George with his lance. This is like when you go and talk to the Sphinx. And he's got riddles. And he knows more than you. You're not going to win. But see, Jesus is not only man, right? He wrote these scriptures. So when the devil comes out and tries to trick him with the scriptures, he can't. These are Jesus' words. He knows better. But of course, I'm ahead of myself now. That's next Sunday. That's Joshua going into the land. That's Jesus fighting the devil. So put a bookmark there. We're coming back. This Sunday, fear reigns. And remember, what day in our lectionary are we? We're in the season after Epiphany. Epiphany, the season of light. We still have the star in the back with the three magi wending their way to infant Jesus, who is the demonstration of God's salvation not only for the Jew, but also for the nations, for us. That's the light. That's the revelation of Epiphany. But as light piercing the gloom and darkness... So also, middle of Epiphany season, following Jesus in his ministry, we see him suddenly, kapow, glow, Transfiguration Sunday. He's, he's not on fire, he's shining like the sun, light in the midst of our darkness, but then he veils it, just a man. 
Three guys saw it. They go down the mountaintop with him, and he says, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, you won't. He says it again, I'm going to die. They just kind of listen. They don't understand. He says it a third time, I'm going to die so that I might rise. And from that point on, particularly in Luke, you might not even see it unless you look. Did you notice? I'm going to find the verse here. Verse 22. He tells these stories. The kingdom is like the yeast. The kingdom is like the mustard seed. And then he went on his way from one town and village to another, teaching and making his way toward Jerusalem. From the transfiguration onward, Jesus only cares about one thing, dying. And all along, people are trying to distract him from that course. He won't do it. He goes to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He goes to die. Now, in that, with that being his focus, his doing, the light of the world entering darkness and veiling itself to pierce the grave, right? To put an end to the grave, we now, since transfiguration, have been in days of darkness where the conflict grows and people reject Jesus more and more. And again, he's going to fight the devil next week, but after that, he's going to make his way to Jerusalem, his face hardened like a flint, and he's going to die. And Lent is our acknowledging that he's done this. That from next Sunday... Through Good Friday, the man did not eat so that he could be put to a chess match of minds and words against the greatest creature that exists. He kicked his butt, destroyed him in this for you. So what's to fear? Why would you ever turn back? That's the question. Now, the people of Israel turned back, and he loved them anyway. So simply because you would make a decision to walk away from the very clear scriptures and gifts of God in Jesus, water with his words, and bread and wine with his words, and nothing else but that at the end of the day, a Christian can walk away from that into half-truth Christianity and still be saved. It can be done if you would like to try the hard way. The free gift of God is eternal life, and you have it. And the promise is that it is for you and your children. And you're not going to have to wait 40 years to see hungry, starving for righteousness people coming to eat it with you. Fear not, little flock. Fear not the foe. He can do nothing. There's so much more. How's our time? Oh, I've gone short so far. Thank goodness. Let me give us a touch of the epistle before we close. I'll try to end it earlier, though, than usual. We've been making our way through the book of Hebrews these last three weeks, all tied to this shadowy event on Mount Sinai, catch the pun on purpose, bleeding over into the New Testament era in the person of Jesus, who's fulfilling all these things of old. And what we have here today in the text is his conclusion. He's got a little bit more in Hebrews. There's a few more chapters. But if you're tracking the big picture, it's kind of all downhill. He's in the climax right now. He's talking to you specifically. You today here, New Testament church, you have not come 
to what may be touched. What does he mean by that? A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg. Hearers, beg that no further message be spoken to them. You have not come to that. You don't have a giant mountain in front of you with fire like Mordor shooting in the sky everywhere and crazy-looking angel beasts blowing their trumpets at you and earthquakes everywhere. You've not come to that. They, when they did, verse 20, they couldn't endure it. They couldn't take the real God unveiled before them. But you, verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion. Now that's key language, catch language for Jerusalem, the city of David, the kingdom temple city on a hill. But it's not about that hill over, where are we? It's about halfway, right? That hill over there in Jerusalem. It's about the man who died on it. That as Adam was made from the dirt, and so when he falls, the dirt and everything else made from dirt, which is the universe, goes with him. So also then Jesus, when he rises, takes everything, not just you individually and not just you corporately and not just you, the church, the creation sings longing with eager expectation for the day of resurrection when his body will replace Adam's body for everything. You're the first fruits of this, getting it early in the supper. That's what you've come to. Which then he says to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I can't remember the last time Meredith and I threw a festal gathering. Such a marvelous sounding thing, a soiree, a gala. What does it mean? Angels and archangels, innumerable, surrounding this altar, surrounding this cross, surrounding the body of Christ wherever he is, ascended or on a million altars around the world right now, inside of you even, your brothers and sisters who communed here this morning. Angels surrounding you, singing for the unleashing of creation. You then, the assembly of the firstborn, that's the church of the immortals, right? Enrolled in heaven, your names are in Christ's hands, and he sits at the right hand of God, the judge of all, who has made your spirit justified. Oh, that's a good word. Righteous, clean, good, innocent. All of this in Jesus, the mediator. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Immediate versus mediate. Something between and something directly to you. You get direct God in Jesus. You get no direct God outside of Jesus. He is the mediator of this new covenant in his blood, his own words. Blood there, feasted on here, better than that blood of Abel that we've been tracking now since the fall. He exhorts us to be grateful. That's my least favorite commandment ever, be grateful. It's awful. You will never make someone say thank you, really, by saying be grateful. It won't happen. They'll say it. They won't feel it. So he doesn't mean that. What he means is, do you feel the gratitude? Do you see it? How good this is? You're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm not sure we even know we have a king. Day by day. I pledge allegiance to the flag. How often do I salute my king? Receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, because of this, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That is not why we do liturgy, but liturgy is reverence and awe about the acceptable worship 
which is not us doing anything than getting what God gives, which is what God gave, which is who he is, which is who he has ever been for you individually, for you as a congregation, for you as Lutherans, for you as Christians in the Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox world. He's the same Savior. Let's come and worship him. In the name of Jesus, amen.